The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. So uh, let's continue our time of worship as we go to God's Word in the book of Matthew. As you know, we've been our, our year-long series through the, through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 12, and so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with us. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, now I'm just going to pause there. This is going to tell you what kind, of, what kind of sermon we have this morning, okay? Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, who was Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and, blas and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, let's start this amazing passage just with a little bit of honesty. A little honesty is that I really wanted to skip this passage in Matthew. I, thought, I seriously thought, I gave, I gave a moment's thought to it. How can, I, how can I skip it? I've preached right before it, I've preached right after it. Maybe no one will notice if we just skip all together. But that's why this passage must be preached. Because it is difficult, because I don't want to preach it, because you don't want to hear it. That's why it must be preached. That's why we need to hear it. That's why Matthew includes it. Matthew is good. He is good at making us feel uncomfortable. If you've been with us through this series for a while, you know that. As we work through the Beatitudes, and we work through these hard sayings of Jesus, and as we work through um, these challenges that he gives to us, these paradoxes, it is hard. Matthew is so good at making us feel uncomfortable, and in fact, that's kind of my job as your pastor, is to make you feel uncomfortable in a way. To talk about the things that we don't want to talk about. To pursue truth and to let God lead us and to convince us and convict us wherever there is error. And so where we're uncomfortable in our faith and where this passage might make us uncomfortable, let's enter into it. Because let me at least attempt to convince you that this is an amazing passage. That this is a beautiful passage 
passage. Have you ever driven through the, the opening of Gates Pass in Tucson? Have you ever driven through that? The road is, is windy and jagged. And it's, it's kind of, it's not very fun if there's a lot of traffic. You're just kind of going through. You're, it feels like you're driving through the desert. There's ter- you think of turning back, and then you see it. The mountain opens up, and all of a sudden you see the Sonoran Desert and its tremendous beauty and the sun setting in the Sonoran Desert. And you say, this is why I did this. This is why I came through this passage. This is why I drove up here to see this majesty. And so you go through this, dra- this jagged process, this dra- jagged passage to find this beauty. And I think that's what we find here. It's like going through Gates Pass at sunset. It's a beautiful passage. My goal is to show you that through this jagged passage of Scripture, there's an amazing view of Jesus. There's an amazing view of, of Jesus that is exposed, that we should enjoy, that we should trust, that we should worship Him because of who He is. And this passage does this by showing us the battle of salvation, the battle for salvation that Jesus engages in with Satan. It shows us the grace of forgiveness and the hope in God's faithfulness. Those three things. And so let's talk first about the battle for our forgiveness. Jesus shows us in this passage that that the pursuit of our forgiveness and in order to secure our forgiveness is not an easy task. It's not something that comes easily, but it's accomplished through an incredible supernatural power. It happens in this way. We see this this miracle, this demon-possessed man. That's how the story starts. A demon-possessed man who can't see or speak, he's healed by Jesus, and now he can see and speak. The Pharisees don't doubt his supernatural power. They don't doubt that he is doing something amazing. They believe, truthfully, that Jesus just exercised a demon from this man. They attribute this to to a, a supernatural power that he must possess. And so Jesus' powers weren't seen as just like he was some kind of uh, like a bad mu- a magician or someone like trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat. They see that this man is working by a supernatural power. But they think that they say that he is working by not God's power, but by Satan's power. They know he's powerful, but they accuse him of doing Satan's work, and that is what is enabling him to do such amazing things. And Jesus, kind of knowing their heart, knowing their thoughts, he responds to them. Jesus doesn't respond with scripture here. He responds, he appeals more to just basic, fundamental reasoning and logic. So people are saying, you're doing these wonderful things, these wonderful powers to the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, seriously, guys? Seriously, I'm working for Satan by defeating Satan. Good job. You're really thinking through this. I am casting out demons, taking away their power, freeing this man from the bondage of Satan through the power of Satan. Can you think for a moment how that sounds so ridiculous? And then he goes on and says, okay, let's say this. Your, your followers, your followers do the same thing. They cast out demons, they heal people. But you don't attribute that to Satan, you attribute that to God. And so why, when they do wonderful works, are they working for God? But when I do a work even greater than their work, I'm working for Satan. If you can agree that your followers are, are, are filled with the power of God to do the small things that they do, then the Spirit of God has come upon me and is in your presence right now by the things that I'm doing. So you cannot say that I'm working for Satan, that I'm cursed by him. You have, to, you have to admit that the Spirit of God is coming upon me because of the things that I've done. And if you reject me, you're rejecting God. 
Jesus calls them out on the carpet here. He calls them out to just reason and to think clearly, to use their head, to look at what Jesus is doing, and to respond to what Jesus is doing as just a reasonable person. He doesn't stop there. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? In verse 29, the strong man represents Satan in this passage, and his house represents Satan's dominion or his kingdom on earth. And his goods are the people that are under his authority, the things that he has, that he has dominion over, the things that he, or people he is oppressing. And Jesus wants us to know that he is the one that is going to battle with Satan. He breaks down his door, he ties him up, and he frees his hostages. We see here, just in a glimpse, this amazing battle for us. This amazing battle that Jesus goes into for our salvation. If you view your, your salvation or your forgiveness of, of sins as one where God just calmly in heaven forgives our sins, right? Because that's what God does. God is supposed to forgive sins. God's a forgiving God. And so if your view of God is one that he sits upon heaven and says, you're forgiven, then you need to look at this passage. God isn't merely sitting in heaven and just casually forgiving sinners. Jesus is kicking down the devil's door and setting hostages free with great power, tying up the strong man because he is even stronger. And seeing his power, we can't possibly remain neutral. We can't possibly look at what he is doing in this passage, look at his nature and his character and the work that he is doing for us and remain neutral. We have to admit, well, he's either, he is, I, the Spirit of God has come upon him and I must receive him, accept him, see the work that he is doing, or I must kill him and betray him. I can't be neutral. I can't say, well, look, the Spirit of God has come upon this man. He is doing mighty supernatural work to defeat my greatest oppressor. Oh, that's pretty cool. What else has he done? We can't remain neutral. He says this in verse 30. Jesus does, can't be said any better than the way Jesus says it in verse 30. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Consider, consider the countless movies that you've seen with the hostage standoffs. You've seen these. You've seen these dozen movies. The movie begins with a conflict. The antagonist takes hostages in a building, and the whole movie is spent in the drama of attempting to free these hostages from their oppressor, from their captor, and they are freed at the end. Now consider one of the hostages at the end of the movie when they are freed and the doors are open and the, and the captor is, <clears throat> is bound and the doors open and all the hostages run free to their families. There's one, there's one captive remaining in the building and says, you know, I think I'll just hang out here a little longer. You wouldn't see that. You don't see that because it's ridiculous. You wouldn't see a captive saying, thanks, but I think I'll stay. I've become pretty comfortable in my environment. If we come to the conclusion that Jesus is doing the work of God and yet fail to surrender all things to him, fail to gather with him, fail to pursue him and run to our rescuer, we are insane as the hostages that stay with their captors. Satan's kingdom is, is, a, is a powerful kingdom that seeks to destroy and rob and kill. And Matthew's been pointing to us to this for a long time. Jesus has been healing people of diseases. He's been delivering people from demons. He's been raising people from the dead. He has been forgiving people of their sins. And all of this has been done to make a point that is so clear. The one who is stronger than sin is here. 
The one that is stronger than the devil and death itself is here and he's come to set sinners free and he's powerful and he engages in the battle for our salvation and he wins. The battle for our salvation is mighty. It is violent. And Jesus is strong. How does Jesus do this? He does this, he does this through the grace of forgiveness. Let's look at that, the grace of of forgiveness. Let's look at verse 31 through 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but he who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In these verses, Jesus is showing us his enormous willingness and desire to forgive. Yet it's possible to put yourself outside of God's Forgiveness. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage or, or the idea of the unforgivable sin. That's what this passage is talking about. I don't know, some of you might know that terminology of you know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or unforgivable sin. And, and as we read this passage in its entirety, you may have been drawn to, to just one phrase in particular. You may have been drawn right away to every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And you may be thinking to yourself, what does that mean? And how do I know that I don't fall into that? Does someone catch this like a virus? Is it, is it something that kind of happens to us accidentally? How do I know if I have committed the unforgivable sin? I'm going to answer that question, but not yet. First, because we go way too quick to that. We are drawn to that. We say, okay, this is scary. How do I, what is that? And how do I know I haven't committed that? There's something important before that that we need to see. And it's, it's in 31a and 32a. Every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven people. Whoever speaks a word of, against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is amazing. There is no, Jesus is saying, there is no particular act, no particular action that in itself is unforgivable. This is amazing to see, and I don't want to move on to this difficult part of the unforgivable sin before looking at this and getting this clear, that Jesus is saying, look how willing I am to forgive. Look how abundant I am to forgive. Look how much I love to forgive. You can speak out against the Son of Man and kill Him, and even that is not unforgivable. Jesus proves this on the cross where people are mocking him and spitting at him and they even kill him. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Even in their worst, Jesus says, even that is forgivable. Even that is not beyond my reach of grace and forgiveness for you. Even that I can forgive. Isn't that amazing? Of all the sins that, can, that you can commit, can we agree together that there's no greater sin than killing Jesus? That's fair enough, isn't it? it of all the things, you know, you can lie and you can cheat, you can commit adultery, you can, you can be deceitful, you can do so many things. But if someone says, you know, I killed the Son of God, there's, yeah, yeah, you did it. <laughs> you, you win, you win the award for the most sinful. And Jesus says, even that is not beyond my reach of forgiveness. So everything else... There is no action, no act that can be done in itself that is beyond the reach of God's grace. 
Let, let me pause for a moment and just let this speak to you where you are. There is nothing in your life too bad, too hard, too bad that you have done that puts you outside of the scope of God's forgiveness. Nothing. Murder, adultery, a life of deception, fraud, maybe even just general laziness of not responding to God. Nothing puts you beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. There's no deed that you can do that disqualifies you based on that deed to keep you from the love of God. Everything that you have felt, said, and done, Jesus says, that does not put you outside of the scope of my forgiveness for you. We think so often that, that forgiveness, again, is just so easy for God, that God must forgive because he's a, a loving God, that that's his job. It's God's job to be forgiving. But it's hard. Have you ever had to forgive somebody for a wrong that's been committed to you? Wrong to the point where you were, were, you were so wound up inside. You were so tied in knots. You were entangled in this own conflict of desiring justice, wanting this person to be made right, wanting this person to pay for their sins, and yet this conflict of also wanting wanting forgiveness, wanting to be released of the pain of, of having to hate a person. This tug of emotions, this tug of war of emotions in your life where you are so hurt and you don't want this person to get away with it, but you also don't want to live in this kind of bitterness for the rest of your life. Have you ever felt that way? Those emotions, where do you think they come from? They come from God who has created them. They have come from God who feels the same thing. God feels those things too. God hates sin, and God loves mercy. How difficult do you think a time God is having with it, if you have a hard time with it? If you hate sin, and it's hard for you to forgive somebody, but you know you want to be a merciful person, and it's hard for you, God is perfectly just in his hatred of sin, and God is perfectly merciful. Let's not take away this tension. Let's not say that it is easy for God to forgive. That is something he does so carelessly. Forgiveness has a huge problem. That God is just and hates sin and must punish sin, and yet God is full of mercy. Do you see the dilemma here? How does God justify his justice for sin and punishment for sin and yet still remain true to himself and being a merciful God? We see that in the cross. We see how hard forgiveness is for God. Forgiveness is hard for you and I. It's hard for God too. Look at how much it cost God to forgive us of sins, to send his own son to die for us. Look at the grace of forgiveness. Look at what it cost. Look how amazing it is. God feels these things. He feels this tension. It's like saying, I love the ocean, but I hate sand. What do I do? I like flying, but I'm afraid of heights. Actually, I don't like either of those things. <laughs> How hard is it to forgive? It's so hard. And so I want you to see, before we go on to this passage where we're, our eyes and our mind are drawn to too quickly, of like, wait, what is that sin? What is that taboo, unforgivable sin? Let's first let this sink in of the grace of God's forgiveness, of his abundant cost to Jesus Christ to secure our forgiveness, and that nothing is out of the scope of his forgiveness. Even if, we, even if we betray Jesus and curse the Son and kill him, we are not too far gone. 
And so no matter what is going on in your life, you're not too far gone. His forgiveness and grace is for you. But, let's come back now. But, because in these two passages in verse 31 and 32, the first part has this wonderful statement followed by the word, but. Two statements, two buts. Every sin is forgiven, but. Every word is forgiven, but. How can this be possible? How can Jesus say, I can forgive you, and there is nothing outside of the realm of my forgiveness, but. How can God say that? There's this riddle that's often asked that is supposed to make us confused and maybe you'll chuckle a little bit. The question is, here's the riddle, can God do anything? Well, yes, of course God is, can do anything. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's all-knowing, all-powerful. Okay, can God microwave a burrito so hot that even he can't eat it? This is the point where we, I think, derailed a little bit. If you say yes, you are saying that God can't eat it and therefore God can't do everything. If you're saying no, then... Uh, you're, you're, you're saying that he can't make it. So either way, you're, you're, you're contradicting yourself and you're in a tough spot, right? So just don't answer the question, okay? If you, but the Bible doesn't say that there are things that are even outside. Sorry, the Bible doesn't say that there are things that even God can't do. The Bible says that God cannot lie. The Bible does say that there are things that God cannot do. God cannot stop being himself. So we say, Yo, no, you know, God can do anything he wants. That's not true. God can't lie. The Bible says that he cannot break a promise, that God cannot go back on his word. There are things that God cannot do, and those things are tied to his nature and character. God cannot not be God. And we cannot decide in our own hearts as we look through Scripture whether we want a holy God who hates sin or do we want a loving God who forgives sin. We cannot have one without the other. He cannot cease to be holy, and he cannot cease to be loving. God cannot stop being himself. What can God not do? He cannot stop being himself. He must be holy. He must punish sin. He must be merciful. If you, want, if you, if, if you have fell, God has to forgive me. He's God. That's his job. And I have often felt those things in my heart when I knew that I was living in a life of sin, when I knew there were things that, were, that I had unrepent, uh, that was unrepenting of, that I was not confessing to God, when there were things in my life that I knew I was on the wrong, living the wrong life and on the wrong path. I would reason with God and I would say, well, God will forgive me because God is a loving God. And so in light of that thing, he understands what I'm going through. I want you to grasp how amazing forgiveness is. How can God forgive when he hates sin so much? How can God not forgive when he loves mercy so much? There's something so much deeper than the phrase, Jesus loves you. When we hear those words, Jesus loves you and Jesus is forgiving, don't gloss over it. Don't see those as simple things. I want you to see the amazing power and, and, and substance behind the phrase that God forgives us of our sins. There's something so much more beautiful to grasp than the simple notion that God forgives sinners. If you read this passage, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, and you barely give it a thought, you think that forgiveness is still something that you deserve and that, easy, that is easy to come by. But if you read this passage and you start with this, and you say, and you read, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, you should just stop right there and fall on your face and say, God, thank you. 
I don't deserve that. I've spoken against the Son of Man in, in so many ways. I've been negligent in my life of worship to Him. I've been careless in my observance of His commands. I have not cared about God in so many ways. Thank you for forgiving me of that. If you knew how much you spoke against the Son of Man in your life and your thoughts and your deeds, you would realize how much forgiveness is a miracle. The point that any of us, you and I, would have a single sin forgiven is a miracle in itself. It is a supernatural miracle. It means that Satan has been bound and defeated for you. It means that Jesus has kicked down the door and set the captive free. It means that he has done that for you. How amazing is that? Jesus shows us, though, that it's possible to put yourself outside of God's ability to forgive. How? Because, like I said, there are things that even God cannot do. Well, what is the, first, what does the Holy Spirit do? Because this is, this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you can, you can offend me, you can speak out against me, you can betray me, but if you betray him, the Holy Spirit, and his work in your life, then you have nothing left. There's no hope for you. What is the Holy Spirit's primary work? Well, the Holy Spirit's primary work is to convict us of our sin and convince us of our need for the grace of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to show you and I where we are wrong. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you will never be convinced and convicted that you have done anything wrong. Anything can be healed through humble and clean confession and repentance, but without repentance, nothing can be healed. Nothing can be forgiven. Nothing can be restored. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying this, if you are convinced of your sin, and you feel the weight of that guilt and that conviction, and you fail to, Jesus, fail to turn to Jesus in humble repentance and trust in him, then something as small as a tiny word that is misspoken or a hateful thought in your heart or a lustful fantasy makes you far beyond the reach of forgiveness because there's nothing left. If in knowing the grace of God that has been given to you and you instead turn to your way of life of sin and fail to recognize God's grace and trust in God's grace, then he says, then there's nothing left. There's no other option. There is no way that you can be forgiven because you've rejected the only hope that there is. You see, if you fail to let God tell you that you are wrong and that your only hope is the grace of God, then you don't need to commit genocide to forfeit your salvation. You don't need to commit some kind of heinous sin to be unforgiven. All you need to do is say a word or to think a thought or do a deed that is out of step with God's command and nature and character in the slightest degree, and you're condemned. All you need to do is just be alive and exist, and you're already condemned. Blasphemy is not something you catch. It's not something that accidentally that you stumble upon. It's not something that just comes your way and say, oh my gosh, did I commit blasphemy? It's recognizing the presence of God in your life, feeling the weight and burden of sin in your heart, knowing the grace of God, the Holy Spirit convincing you and convicting you of sin, and instead you continuing to choose to be your own Savior. It is recognizing the, the, that the Spirit of God has come upon you and, and is working in Jesus, 
to save us from sin, to release us from our captors, and to say, no, I think I'm good, I'll stay here. If you harden your heart to what the Holy Spirit is showing you in your heart, then no sin is forgivable. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not that there's this one isolated deed or work that is beyond the reach of forgiveness. Jesus is saying, no sin is forgivable. If you reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life to convict you and lead you to Jesus, there's nothing left. And it doesn't matter what you do or, or how good you are in your life, nothing can be forgiven and you're condemned. Why is it unforgivable? Because rejecting Christ and by rejecting Him, having convinced by the Holy Spirit of His deity, His power, His purpose in our lives, we remove the only pathway to forgiveness and there's nothing else. They, the Pharisees here are being condemned because they reject the only pathway to forgiveness. They are saying, I know the Spirit of God is upon you. You're working with supernatural power, but we don't like you and we don't agree with you. And Jesus says, then there is nothing left for you. I want to read a, a psalm here that I think will be helpful for us because the themes are so consistent and the psalmist David really walks through this journey of Psalm 32. Just follow along as it's printed there on the screen. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. First of all, David here is saying he's, he is... It's as if he's reading 31a and 32a, and he's saying, anyone commits a sin against the Son of Man, if anyone commits blasphemy against the Son of Man, they're forgiven. David is saying, that's amazing. How is it possible that any one of us can stand before God and be forgiven? We truly are blessed. And then he goes on in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 3 and 4 are really important. David says, I know I was wrong. I know that God was my hope. And I know I was wrong. And I didn't change. And I didn't ask for forgiveness. And I just whined about it. You see this? He said, through my groaning. See, he was, he, was, he was guilty of his sin. He was being eaten up by the guilt of his sin. The Holy Spirit was convicting David in his heart. And David, instead of turning to God, just, he just whined about it. He deflected it onto others. He, he deflected it onto somebody else to make him feel better. It's someone else's fault, maybe. He tried to compare his sins. Well, I wasn't as bad as somebody else. He tried to pretend with God. Maybe if, I, if God sees all the effort I'm putting into it, he will love me. But David recognizes God, it's your hand that is crushing me. It's your hand that will not release. There is this moment here that David has a choice to harden his heart, to continue resisting the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life, or he can do something else that will save him, that will rescue him. He can turn to God in his grace. And that's what he does. In verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then there's this little word, Selah. This little word that these musicians will use in the Psalms. It's a pause. When you're singing these praises, it's just meant to say, just think about that for a second. 
This is the moment where every one of us should see that we've been here right where David has been a million times. And I want you to pause as David pauses. It's an interruption in something very true. And just reflect, the knot that you get in your stomach from the sin is a gift. The feeling of God's heavy hand on your life where you know you're not living as you should and you need to be better is a gift. The thing that is pushing you to confess your sins to God, to trust in his grace, to ask forgiveness, to to right those wrongs, that is a gift from God. It is his work to convince you, to convict you, to love you. It is a work to show you that he's doing battle for your soul. The presence of God through his spirit that seemed to not let us go is amazing. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of those a million times being in that same moment where David's saying, what am I going to do? How long can I go without talking to God about this? How long can I go to try to figure this sin out? And there's this moment of truth. There's this moment where I'm going to continue to reject God, to not talk to him, or I am going to humble myself and cast myself on the grace of his forgiveness. What you do next is so important when you're in a moment like this. What you do next is so important. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And David is, is talking here similarly as we read from Jesus in Matthew. He's saying, if you reject this, you're not going to be, it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to be so far off. Jesus says, in this life or the next, it doesn't matter, you're going to be so far. David is saying, we won't be able to reach him in times of trouble. We won't be, he won't be able to be found. So as he's able to be found, let us cast ourselves on him. And then in verse 7, finally, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What you do in those times where you feel the heavy hand of God in your life is so important. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Maybe you're in a place in your life where you are discerning that God is trying to reach you. He is speaking to you. What are you going to do? God's forgiveness is so amazing that he does battle for our soul, that he binds up the strong man, and that he rescues the hostage. Cast yourself on his love. Ask for his forgiveness, and he will release you from the bondage of that sin. Sin is a supernatural thing. You see here, Jesus is showing us wide open. He is showing us that there are two kingdoms, that the devil is real, that Satan's oppression is real. And he desires in each of our hearts, in that moment where sin is in our life, he wants to show us that we can do it. We can figure it out. We can maintain a relationship with God and yet conceal that sin. That we can save ourselves. I mean, come on, you're a smart person. Think of all the bad things that could happen if you confess your sin. You might lose relationship. You might lose your job. You might lose fellowship. You might be ridiculed. You might be mocked and cast out. Maybe God won't even love you. That's the devil talking to you. And and Jesus knocks down the door, kicks in the door, ties up that enemy, and says, I'm here to deliver you. I'm here to break that curse. That's what Jesus does. And he takes us 
next with this analogy of these two trees. The hope of God's faithfulness, finally, where Jesus shares this analogy of two trees. Jesus now talks about the trees that are healthy, the trees that are unhealthy, the trees that are healthy produce good fruit, and the trees that are unhealthy produce unhealthy fruit. And Jesus judges these trees by, on the basis of their fruit. And again, like this passage doesn't get much better. I'm sorry, I wish I could tell you, but here's the, here's the most clear kicker. But then he says some more troubling things. These verses use different metaphors to make the same point. That what you say and what you do depends on and reveals who you truly are. Jesus is talking about our heart. He's talking about who we are at our core, the causal core of our identity. That thing that motivates all that we are is not based on just our... We are people that are not just people of behavior and, and attitude. We are people of motivation that rest deep within our heart. It reveals who we are. What we say, what we do, it reveals what we really treasure. The Pharisees' remarks cannot be treated like a passing remark. Hey, this guy's doing work of the devil. Jesus says, you say that because you're dead inside. You say that because you do not believe. You say that because you are cursed. Not because you're just working through this. You say that because you're revealing that you are dead inside. Jesus in this passage can be seen in a broad sense as, as a final judge. Do not misunderstand his teaching. He's not saying that we are judged by our words alone. Nor are we judged on the, merely on the basis of our record, but we are judged by our identity. We are judged by who we are at our core. And the unforgivable sin is not about what is spoken, but rather about what lies beneath what is spoken. Beneath an unforgivable sin is a heart that resists the Holy Spirit's work in our life, rejects the grace of God, and continues to seek our own salvation through our work, through our merit, through our own righteousness. But beneath the forgivable sin is a heart of humble repentance who's convicted of our sin and sees Jesus for who he is and his ability to save us, and we cast ourselves on his mercy. Jesus is asking, do you want to be justified? He uses that word, do you want to be justified? What does that mean? Do you want to be made right with God? You are judged by one of two ways. You can be judged by your record and your character. So do everything right. Do everything as God has asked. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, I'm going to judge you based on that work. How many of us could stand if that were the, the metrics for our salvation? None of us, as David says. But let me judge you another way. Let me judge you based on my record. Let me judge you based on my sin. And what you have to do is humble yourself, repent of your sins, and turn to me. You need to know that you're broken. You need to know that you're a sinner. You need to know that uh, what it costs to seek your salvation. It's not something that God just does like he's handing out Halloween candy because that's his job is just to forgive people. You need to know what it costs him. That you deserve to be on that cross. You deserve to be, you and I deserve to be condemned for our sins. But Jesus is our rescuer. Those in, not indwelled by the Spirit of God, no matter what good they attempt to do, cannot earn the justification from God. And those indwelled by the Spirit of God are incapable of losing their justification before God. So let me say this. Basically, all that I've said is to, maybe if you're still worried, did I commit that unforgivable sin? Christians can't commit this sin. 
because a house divided cannot stand. That's what Jesus says. And likewise, uh, the devil cannot do... You know, the devil cannot do works that are against the devil, nor can God do work against God. If we are filled with his spirit and we trust in Jesus, we're convinced of our sin and trust in his grace as our only hope, as our greatest treasure, then his spirit dwells within us, and that cannot be taken away. We cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God cannot be divided in us. If you are a Christian who trusts in the grace of God and his forgiveness for your sin, you cannot commit that sin. However, if this, your works, your response to sin will give evidence of your genuine faith. How you respond to that, the Spirit's leading in your life, the conviction of sin, the calling you to trust and to confess, how you respond to that will reveal if the grace of God and the Spirit is upon you. What is beneath the forgivable sins? The heart that responds to the grace of God with humble repentance. Jesus says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. If you want to know if your sins are forgiven, then look at ultimately what you treasure. What is your greatest good? Is it your ability to please God? Is it your ability to be a good person? Then that will take you as far as your ability to, to obey God, which is not very far. But if your treasure is Jesus, if your treasure is the grace of God that's been offered to you, if your treasure is his work for you, and you've received that, your heart is full of life and full of his power. Jesus talks about treasure again and just a few verses later in Matthew 13, 44, and says this, The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, with a, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The treasure, to treasure Jesus' kingdom like this is to be so aware of your undeserved forgiveness. Like a man stumbling upon a field and saying, what? What are the chances? What are the odds that I would come upon this field on this day and at this very spot and I would find this thing that would change my life forever? Do you feel that way about your forgiveness? When you read a passage that says you can, that nothing, none of your sin, your past, your present, or your future can put you beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, do you say, what? Are you kidding me? Seriously? And then he goes and sells everything he has. He buys that field so it could be his. What do you treasure? Do you treasure that treasure hidden in the field, the forgiveness of God, is the kingdom of God that is given for you? then you will run to it, that you will be amazed by it, that you will rest in it. Repentance is often used in the church as this dirty word, right? Repent, because it always comes to us when we're doing something wrong. And so it's almost like repentance is a, it's like a punitive thing. It's something that we give penance to. It's something like, well, you did this bad, now you've got to do this right to make amends for it. So repentance is this dirty word in the church. But let me tell you that repentance is a beautiful word. Repentance is a joyful word. Repentance is the joy that is found in this man to give up everything that he had so that he can have this treasure in the field. Repentance is not a dirty word for this man. It was a joyful word. He said, tell me when I can do it. Right now, done. Craigslist.com, eBay, everything's being sold, and I'm going to get this treasure. Do you see this in your life? Do you grasp this treasure? Are you enjoying the joy of your salvation? Let's hold on to it. Let's enjoy it. 
Let's rest in it. Let's be confident it'll work in our life. And if you feel God's leading in your life right now, don't ignore it. Know that he loves you. Know that that's a gift. And go to him and ask for his mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how amazing of you that you would come down and go to battle, to fight the battle that we could not win. Words fail us. We say thank you. We say it's amazing. We say, wow. We say, what a beautiful passage. What a beautiful truth for who Jesus is. And so, God, do not judge us based on our merit, but based us on the merit of Jesus, because we trust in him. We treasure him. We responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we cast ourselves on your mercy. Thank you so much. As much as we would want you to leave us alone, would you please not stop pressing in on our heart? Would you not stop with your heavy hand that convicts us of our sin? Because if, if you left us in that, if you stopped pressing in and disciplining us, then that would mean you don't love us, that we're not forgiven. And so thank you for being present in our heart and in our life. Thank you for redeeming us from our greatest enemy. And thank you for giving us your grace. As we take this meal, Lord, let it be a meal that we take fresh. Thankful for your sacrifice and what it cost. Thankful for you going to war for our forgiveness. And thankful for all that we have because of what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.